honor your father and your mother. And the ruler says, I've kept all of these from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. After the ruler heard this, he was very, very sad. It says he became extremely sad. Why? Because he was very, very rich. And seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth. I want you to hear that. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man or with man, it is impossible. With man, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is impossible for rich people to be saved. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Impossible for wealthy. What does it mean wealthy people? What does it mean for, what, what is a wealthy person? Let me define wealth as I'm thinking about wealth and riches in this sermon today. When I'm thinking wealthy and rich, what I mean by it is those who have wealth and by that I mean your basic needs are already met, your physiological needs, right? Food, water, shelter, clothes. Well, clothes, that would be your basic physiological needs. And then your, your safety needs, so there's shelter. And you're in a place of safety. And you have relationships. You, you, you're, you're loved by others and you love others and you belong to some people. You have friends. Basic needs. Physiological needs, safety needs, relational needs, just a few friends. That's your basic needs. And if you have more than that, then you are rich. You're wealthy. So if you have private transportation, if you get to choose what you want to eat, you have a menu of things, you don't just have to eat to survive, but you can choose the different things you want to eat. If you, want to, if you can choose your own drinks, if you have your own personal space, you're wealthy. If you go beyond basic needs, you have excess. Praise God, in some ways, that you have wealth, but you're, you're rich. If you're not scraping by for survival, and you have safety, and you're not alone, then you are relatively wealthy. And Jesus says, it's impossible for a rich person to enter God's kingdom to be saved. Do you know how hard it is to get a camel through the eye? Do you know how hard it is to get a thread through the eye of a needle? How many of you have gotten a thread through the eye of a needle before? Yeah, some of you, first of all, it's easier, right? You have to, some strategies, lick it or something, just make sure, you know, to, to get it through. But it, it's not the easiest thing, but it, it can be done. It's, it, it, it can be done to get, to get thread through an eye of a needle. But um, now I, I don't have a camel. I have a horse, and by horse, I mean I have a cat named horse, as you know, but it'd be impossible to get a cat through the eye of a needle. It'd be impossible to get a real horse through the eye of a needle. It'd be impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible for rich, for the rich, for those who have wealth. With man, it is impossible for them to be saved. And many of us are wealthy. Many of us are rich. Many of us have access to resources and materials beyond our basic needs. And Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You guys remember that? Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. What does it mean to serve money? Have you ever thought about that? How do you serve money? Do you put money on like a, 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 an altar and then bow down before money? Is that what it means to serve money? Does it mean that you obey money's commands because money is giving you commands and you're, you're obedient to, to money? What does it mean to serve money? Have you ever thought about that? That's a strange phrase. Serve money. How do I serve money? If I say serve your wife, I know what it means to serve my wife. I can think of things I can do. When you say serve money, Jesus says don't serve money. What does it mean to serve money? 
John Piper answers it this way. To serve money means to calculate all of your behaviors, all of your life, to maximize what money can give you. Always asking what benefits can come to you from money. Do you guys get that? You don't give to money. You don't listen to money. You think about money. You calculate and project where you're gonna go if you had more money. You think about how to get more money and maximize the money so that you can get more of the blessings and the benefits from that master, from that God, money. It's about the benefit and blessing you think you can get through money. That's how you serve money, by being consumed in your thinking about it. Or to go back to my story, not being able to do what I think God wants me to do, be a pastor because of money, because I'm thinking about, I'm serving money. I can't do this because I'm thinking about money. That's what it means to serve money. And you know, in this day and age with weak and empty Christianity, the weak and theologically anemic Christianity in our culture and in our day and in our churches enable us to think that we can serve God and serve money. So if you've ever heard of moralistic therapeutic deism, don't worry about that phrase. It's just basic American religion. Here are two tenets of basic American religion. The central goal in life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. And here's tenet number two. God, God does not need to be particularly involved in your life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. Do you guys see that in people's lives? God is not needed in life except when I have a problem or when you have a problem. Then you need God and only then. But other than that, God's there. He's created the world. He's just kind of out there. Just be a good person. Don't kick your dog. You know, help old ladies cross the street. Don't murder anybody. Just be a good person. You don't need to think about God too often, except when you are in trouble. When, when you think of Christianity like that, like God is there on the side. He's not really central to your life. He's not really king of what you do before you go to sleep or the first thing when you wake up. When he's not that, you can say, I could have God and money, what's the big deal? It's easy to have both. Now the problem is we are wealthy and we wanna follow Jesus. And here's our, here's our challenge. The world is constantly, constantly pressuring us, distorting, disorienting, and deceiving us in ways that are overwhelming with the love of money. And what, with, what the money, with what money and the materials and possession, possessions of this world can give you. Do you remember Jesus said that one of the, weed, one of the seeds that were planted that, was, that died was choked out by the cares of this world? By wealth? And the wealth of this world draws us and it causes Christians to fall away. Professing Christians. Do you remember the story of Demas? Demas is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He was a missionary he was a church leader. He planted many churches with the Apostle Paul. And in the end, in, in 2 Timothy 4.10, it says that Demas abandoned me because he loved this present world. He abandoned the mission. He abandoned Jesus. He abandoned the gospel. He abandoned the kingdom and the kingdom priority because he loved the world. That's what it could do to you. We have 154 members in this church. It would not be surprising if some of them, a handful of members, fell away from Christ because of love for money. That's not impossible, that's not improbable. We don't have to be drawn away by the worldly wisdom of wealth, but often, but we're, we're constantly pressured by the worldly wisdom of wealth. And the worldly wisdom of wealth says you can have it both ways. You can have Jesus and have your love for money. You can be devoted to, to wealth and to Jesus. And I want to tell you today, here's the main goal, here's the main call. Reject the world's wise ways of wealthy living. Reject the world's ways, the world's wise ways of wealthy living. And I say wise ways because what is James all about? Wisdom, right? There's a wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. There's a wisdom that is divine, heavenly, and spiritual. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And our wealth is an indicator of whether we are actually being duped by worldly wisdom, thinking that it's Christian wisdom when it's actually demonic wisdom. Okay, so reject the world's wise ways of wealthy living. 
That's verse one. Look at verse one. Come now, you rich people. Here's the command. Weep and wail. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. So weep over it, wail over it, mourn over the miseries that are coming on you because of wealth and what wealth has done to your lives. Now he says, come now, you rich people. Some people think he's talking to non-Christians here. I don't think that's strictly the case. Certainly it includes non-Christians, but look at verse 13 of chapter 4. What does James say in James 4.13? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel and do such and such. Do Christians do that? Do Christians make plans and forget God? Yes. So that instructions for them. Are some Christians rich? Yes or no? Yes. So this applies to them. Now, certainly uh, what James is going to do here is going to push to where wisdom becomes an idol to the point that you, you show that you're not really a Christian. But does James write about true Christianity versus false Christianity? Does he not? He does, right? He says, what good is it if you say, I believe in Jesus, but have no works? Can that faith save you? Faith without works? No, it can't. Faith without works is? Is dead. And if you have, will, you have the wealth of this world, and you say you love Jesus, but you're dominated and characterized by this passage, that's like faith without works. That's a dead faith. That's a false profession. So this is written to professing Christians. Raise your hand if, you're, if you profess to be a Christian. Okay, all the members do, right? At least. If you're saying you're a Christian, that, this, this, this is written for you. If you're wealthy and you're a professing Christian. So why should we reject the world's wise ways of wealthy living? Five reasons. Six reasons. I'll give you five right now. I'll give you the six lastly. Number one, it promotes false security. The world's wisdom increases. Secondly, it increases undeniable materialism. It makes God angry, number three. It perpetuates selfishness and it oppresses the poor. I'll say it one more time. It's still gonna be too fast for you. Too bad, just wait till we get to it. Okay? It promotes false security. It increases undeniable materialism. It makes God angry. It perpetuates selfishness and it oppresses the poor. Let's look at these one at a time. So there, there's verse one. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail, repent, grieve, Grieve over the miseries that are coming on you. Miseries are coming your way because of your wealth and because of the way you've embraced worldly wisdom. Look at verse 2. It promotes false security. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. So you have three things here. What happens to your wealth? It has what? Rotted. What happens to your clothes? They are what? Moth-eaten. What happens to your gold and silver? They are? Corroded. And yet you find security in your clothes. You find security in your wealth. You find security in your gold and silver. But that security is a false security. It's an empty security. We live in this day and age to save money, to plan for retirement. And yet that security, even that, which is not wrong in and of itself, that will not give you ultimate security in the end, will it? It won't. I was with a pastor recently who worked as a chaplain. And I said, tell me some lessons you learned as being a, a, a hospice chaplain. And he said, man, he's like, he's like, it's crazy to see how many people, like what they do before they die. He said, there's this one woman who, she died the next day, I was visiting her the day before she died. She had barely any strength. And what she was doing the whole time was writing paying bills. Like with whatever strength she had left. And I was just like, man, this is just, you know, just the, the lack of peace, the concern, the worry um, that, 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 that overwhelmed her. Money cannot help extend your life. Money cannot secure peace and joy in your life. And one day you will die. Wealth rots. Clothes get moth-eaten. Gold and silver, your gold and silver is corroded. What does it mean wealth rots? If wealth is more than money and all the, it's all these good things, it includes all these good things this world of this world that wealthy people have, at the end of the day, wealth cannot provide security you need from death. It cannot provide you security from judgment, and it cannot give you personal peace and happiness in the end. When it says gold and silver has corroded, maybe it's pure gold, pure gold doesn't corrode. So maybe James is using hyperbole here to really make a point that even this pure gold that doesn't corrode will be corroded in the end. That's possible. Or it could also be that in the ancient world, gold was not pure. They didn't have methods to make it as pure as we can today. And so gold back then would still eventually be corroded. Either way, 
The point here is that money specifically will fall short of providing the security that you need. Your wealth will rot, your gold and silver will be corroded. Do you remember Steve Jobs, who's responsible for gadgets like this, right? The smartphone and the iPhone and the iPad and things like that had all the money at his disposal that a, that a human can need, and yet could not get the medical security he needed and the health he needed from money. At the end of the day, it is insufficient. It is insecure. What about clothes? Your clothes are mothing. Clothes have the power to make you feel a certain way when you put things on. Have you noticed that? I didn't notice that so much. I, I really minimized the, the power of clothing, or at least I was ignorant to the power of clothing, until I saw one of our BBC kids put on a costume, an Elsa costume. <laughs> and what her mind, what, what happened, the switch in her mind, as she started dancing around and just, you know, moving around the room was like, wow, the power of clothes, the power of a costume. That's why we like to shop for clothes. That's why we like new clothes, right? It makes us feel good. It makes us feel a certain way. It's wonderful. But, and that's not a bad thing. But at the end of the day, when you put your security in that, at the end, you know, because the clothes that you really like today, a year from now, you're not as excited about as you were when you first put it on. So you need new clothes to get that feeling back. But your clothes at the end of the day are mothy. They're decaying and they will not sustain you in the end. Now, I don't think James is speaking about literal, like literal moth-eating at that point. If you go back to James chapter two, verse two, he says, someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and a poor, a poor person dressed in filthy clothes comes in. And so he's not saying that, that rich people are literally wearing moth-eating clothes. But at the end of the day, it's not secure, okay? It doesn't make sense. You need to reject the world's wise ways because it promotes false security when you put your security in wealth. It's like me storing, our, our family goes through milk pretty fast in our home. Um, it's like if you're trying to keep milk for six months, so you just stock up, we stock up 24 gallons. I was thinking 24 gallons, 24 gallons of milk would get us through six months. So we buy like 24 gallons of milk and put them all in our refrigerator and our extra refrigerator and use this church refrigerator as well just to put 24 gallons of milk away so that I won't have to go buy some for the next six months. Would that work? No. Why? Because milk what? It rots. It gets spoiled. It will not keep me well supplied for the next, next half year. It won't do it. By its nature, it's not meant to last. So it is with your wealth. So it is with your clothes. So it is with your gold. So it is with your money. So it is with your retirement plans. It will all be corrupted. It will all go away. It, is, it has zero security for peace and happiness before God in the end. Trusting fading things is foolish. It's like if you're married and you're trusting your premarital romance to sustain and strengthen your marriage for the next decades. That power of premarital romance has faded and it will not secure marital strength. That's okay, it's not supposed to. It's supposed to do its job at its time and then you move on. And wealth has a small job. And we make it do a bigger thing than it does. So reject the world's wise ways of wealthy living because the world's wisdom or because it promotes false security. Secondly, it increases undeniable materialism. Look at verse three, it increases undeniable materialism. Now, have you, have you ever done jury duty before? Raise your hand if you've done jury duty. Not just got called in, but actually did a, did a trial. Anyone else? Not that many of you? Wow. Well, I, I've done a two-week stint once, and there was a serious charge, and they brought witness after witness after witness after witness. We had like, I don't know, several witnesses, over seven or eight, maybe 10 or more than 10 witnesses in this trial. And we as a jury were carefully observing and paying attention and weighing the evidence. Is this person guilty or not? Well, we gotta see, is there enough evidence to go beyond a reasonable, a reasonable doubt that this person is guilty? We gotta cast a vote as a juror here. We gotta know and weigh the evidence. Well, look at verse three here, as James talks about your wealth. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a what? 
Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Your wealth is a witness. What does your wealth testify to? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. Where is your heart? Where your what? Where your treasure is. Your treasure testifies to the place of your heart. It's a witness. Wealth is a witness. Money is a witness to what you treasure. So your treasures and your investments infallibly and undeniably witness to your heart's location. What has supremacy in your heart? What rules over you? What God do you serve? We don't have to guess. We don't have to guess. Just look at the wealth. Follow the money. Because wealth is witness to where your heart is located. So where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? Where does your daydreaming go? If you had more money, what would you spend it on? Where, where do you direct your relationships? All of this wealth, to what direction do you, do you move it? Because toward where your heart is, is where your treasure is. Kids, Younger kids, at least. So kids like City and Glow. If you were given $100 as a gift right now, what would you spend it on? Do you remember when you first had your first $100? When you first held $100? Whoa. I'm going to buy a car. Right? <laughs> Got $100. Bucks, you know? Uh, you, used to think it, you used to think it was a lot of money, right? When you were younger. Kids, what would you do if you had $100? Some of you older kids think, no, that $100 is not a lot. What if you had $1,000? $1,000 is a lot for a teenager. Someone give you $1,000. What would you spend it on? What would you do with it? What would you do with it? This testifies to where your heart is. And listen to it. It says, this corrosion will be witness against you, and this, this witness and this corrosion will eat your flesh like a fire. What does that mean, that it will eat your flesh like a fire? Because you don't treasure Jesus... Because you treasure the world and worldly things and worldly possessions, it has testified that you're not a Christian. And so this testimony will eat, it becomes the spark that fans the flame that consumes your body in fire, in flames, in judgment. The rich people here who have displaced Jesus, they are doomed to hell. Their wealth is a witness to their idolatry. And it will consume their flesh. What does it mean they'll consume their flesh? We've got a little eschatology going on here. End times. Will people burn bodily in hell in the lake of fire? Yes or no? According to the Bible, yes. In Revelation 20, there will be a great resurrection in the end. When you die, your body's buried in the tomb. But after, at the great judgment, everyone's bodies will be resurrected. And those who are judged and names are not in the book of life. Those who have worshipped money and worshipped wealth and served money or tried to serve money and Jesus tried to but really didn't, they, their bodies will be thrown into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur forever and ever. The place created for the demons and for Satan and the beasts. That's where all of those who are apart from Christ will be thrown. And your money will testify. It is the, it's the spark of the flame that will end up burning you forever. Look at verse 3. Let's finish verse 3. You have stored up treasure in the last days. These are the last days. You're about to die. These are the last days. Christ has come. This is the end times. We are living in the end times. Ever since Christ rose from the dead and poured out his Holy Spirit, we have been living in the end times. We're almost at the end of the age. And these are the last days. And what should you be doing in the last days? Not storing up and hoarding stuff for yourself. The last days are here. Judgment is coming. Misery is coming. So why do you store up treasures on earth? Why do rich people store up treasures on earth? You remember the parable of the rich fool, right? In Luke 12, verses 18 and 19, he takes all of his wealth and he builds bigger barns. And God says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Then what will be with your wealth? So it is with everyone who is not rich toward God. If you're not rich toward God, 
It's like receiving a terminal diagnosis, God forbid, but that, that happens. It may happen among us here who are temporarily healthy right now. Receiving a terminal diagnosis. Doctor walks in and says, you have eight to 12 months to live. I'm sorry. The best we can do, best, best outcome, eight to 12 months to live. If you got that terminal diagnosis, and then you spend that next year saving as much money as you can, buying as many toys as you can, buying a new car, getting new technology, getting new clothes, as many clothes as you want to feel, to keep up that feeling of goodness, maybe even buying another place to live if you could afford another place to live, Southern California, so maybe you can't, but if you could, like, would you do that in your last eight to 12 months? Knowing that you're gonna die? Just buy more stuff? Try to make as much money as you can. Go to work, say, you know what, I, I gotta work overtime. Can you imagine that? Someone starts working overtime at work because they only have eight to 12 months to live. That's stupid, right? That's foolish. You got eight to 12 months. Why are you working overtime at work? To make money for what? That's what James is saying. These are the last days. And what are you doing? You're storing up treasures where? Earth. On earth. Why would you do that in the last days? It makes no sense. Jesus is coming soon. So is judgment. And the world says, and the world will tell you, store up more goods. And, and Christian friends will tell you, that's okay. You could be a little bit worldly. You have a little bit of earthly values that, that puts, pushes Christ just a little bit out of the center. You can push Jesus a little bit out. Just keep one foot in there. 75% Jesus in the center. And the, the answer is judgment. The penalty is death. The wages of sin is death. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand the message of the gospel. This is the message of Christianity. God made you to know and enjoy him, to enjoy him, and to use money to enjoy him and to bless others. But we have worshiped money and worshiped other things besides God. Instead of using these tools to worship and enjoy God, we use God to worship and enjoy these other tools. And because of that, the wages of sin is death. We all deserve to go to hell. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to take the judgment that you and I deserve. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead so that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, you'll be saved. Saved from wrath, saved from hell. God will give you his Holy Spirit and he will change you to love him and free you from the love of money and the worldly wisdom the worldly wisdom of, of the wealthy. Look at Luke 16 with me. Keep your finger here in James, but look at Luke 16 with me. Luke 16, one through 13, Jesus tells a story. I'm convinced that James has all kinds of stories of Jesus in his mind as he's writing his book. I, I want to tell like seven stories from Jesus. I'll probably tell like four or five before we're done. Now in Luke 16, there's a man who gets fired. Luke 16, one, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you are no longer my manager. In other words, you're what? Fired. You're fired. You're fired. Clear out your desk and go home. And this man says in verse three, what will I do? I got no skills. My, since my master is taking management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't do manual labor. I'm ashamed to beg. I, I have no skills. I'm going to die. I, got no, I have no way of making money. What do I do? And so here's what he says. I know what I'll do. So that I'm when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me in their homes. So what does he do? I'll just summarize verses 5 through 8, 5 through 7. You know what he does? When people owe his, his boss money, he would go to them and say, how much do you owe? Oh, I owe $100,000. Hey, here, you owe $50,000, just pay $50,000. $50,000 off? Yep, $50,000 off, don't worry, that's what you got. How much do you owe? Oh, I owe $20,000. Don't worry about it, just pay $15,000. And he just went to like four or five people and just starts slashing all of their debts that they owed the master. And it was an official slash because he's still the manager before he's done working. And why did he do that? So that when, he's, when he doesn't have work, what could he do? Tell me, why, 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 is, why is he doing that? So that what? They'll return the favor, right? 
They'll, they'll take care of him. If he takes care of them now, he knows that he's about to lose the job. They'll take care of him on the other side. And so this is what Jesus says in verse 8. Well, verse 8, the master, not Jesus, the master in the story praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. He was taking care of himself. He saw the writing on the wall. And then Jesus said, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, here's Jesus' command. Here's the moral of the story. Make friends for yourselves by, worlds of, by means of worldly wealth so that when your worldly wealth fails, and it will, they may welcome you into what? Eternal dwellings. Use your worldly wealth for treasures in eternal dwellings. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 10. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine, eternal wealth? Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. I love this because Jesus is using this serve two masters in a different story than we're used to, right? No one can serve two masters. Since he will either hate one and love the other, he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So how do you serve God? We talk about serving money. How do you serve God according to this passage? How do you serve God and not money? You use money and you use worldly wealth to build up what? Heavenly wealth. That's how you serve God according to this passage, right? You either use your, you either use your worldly wealth for worldly ends or you use your worldly wealth for eternal ends. You either serve, you can't use your money for both. What is the direction of all your money and all your worldly wealth? Is it towards eternal dwellings or is it towards worldly, temporary, fading pleasures? Reject the world's wise ways of wealthy living. Why? Because it promotes false security. Secondly, it increases undeniable materialism. Third, it makes God angry. We'll pick up the pace here a little bit with these last ones. It makes God angry. Your sin, look at verse four. Go back to James chapter five, verse four. Look, the pay you withheld from the workers who mowed your field cries out and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. So you take care of, so here are people who are employers, bosses, business owners, and leaders. They have authority and they use their authority selfishly for their own Benefit and not to serve those they have authority over. So they don't pay people. They withhold wages from people. And nobody cares. The police don't care. Leaders don't care. Bosses get away with it. Those in authority are able to get away with taking advantage of those under their authority. And nobody pays attention. People miss it. Injustices happen all the time. You know who never misses it? Who never misses it? God, right? The Lord of hosts. That's what it says. The Lord of armies. God of armies. Listen, it says, the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. Literally, the pay, the money is crying out. The like, if you translate it literally, the money is crying out to God that injustice has been happening. And God does not miss it. God cares, and so God is angry with sin. God is a God of justice and righteousness. I love Martin Luther King Jr.'s definition of justice. One of his quips on justice, he said this, justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Justice at its best is power that stands against everything, or that, that the power correcting everything that stands against love. In other words, justice is for the sake of love. If you love people, but injustices are blocking and standing against that love, you gotta correct that. You gotta correct that so that love happens, so that true love flows, right? And God is a God who loves, God is love. And if God loves those who are being oppressed, then God is a God of justice, who happily corrects injustices, he sees it. Now this is a message for the rich, not for the poor. But the poor should be encouraged that God sees when, that they're, when they're being oppressed. But the point here is that God sees and the rich are the ones who are taking advantage of the poor. Do you know any other story in the Bible where God hears the cries of others in heaven? Does that remind you of any other story in the Bible? God hearing the cries? Exodus, Exodus? yeah. Slavery, 
When the, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, they were crying out, just crying and moaning about their pain in slavery, and God heard their cries. God heard their cries. Now, the, the Egyptians would say, well, I'm not Pharaoh. It's not my thing. Did, but did, did the other Egyptians benefit from the slavery? Yeah. It wasn't just the taskmasters. All of Egypt benefited. They're like, but I'm not a slave owner. I'm not the one who did this. Pharaoh did it. But as they participate in and continue to uphold the system of injustice and slavery there in Egypt, God hears the cries. And he cares. And he's angry. We as Christians don't like to think of ourselves as the Egyptians. As the slave owners. But that's what James is calling the rich here. Who have given into the worldly wise ways of wealthy living. So let's reject the world's wise ways of wealthy living. Because it promotes false security. It increases undeniable materialism. It makes God angry. Number four, it perpetuates selfishness. It perpetuates selfishness. Look at verse five. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. And you have indul indulged what? Who? You've indulged yourselves. This is, a, this is an issue of luxury versus sufficiency. Luxury versus what you actually need. Luxury versus necessity. What is a necessity? What do we need? According to Jesus, he said, if you have food, if you have drink, and you have clothes, you're good. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, food, drink, Clothing will be added to you. God will take care of your needs as you seek first the kingdom. We could add shelter. So those are basic needs, right? Physiological needs, safety needs, love and belonging needs. Now notice those needs, none of them are luxurious or more material possessions than money. I was overwhelmed by this idea of meeting needs that I was thankful to my parents Sent them a text this morning just thanking them. I was like, wow, all my physiological needs were met. They fed me, they clothed me, they gave me drink. It was a safe home, we had shelter, and they loved me and they gave me a place of belonging. They helped me build friendships. They brought me to a church. A lot of that is not financial, right? Friends, love, belonging, just to make sure you're fed. A lot of that is not financial, that basic needs, basic necessities. And yet here, the wealthy are living in luxury and indulging themselves. They're indulging themselves. Listen to Luke 16, verse 19. I know I had you in Luke, but let me read to you again from Luke. This is a story of the rich man and Lazarus. You guys know that story, the rich man and Lazarus? Luke 16, 19 says, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. Okay? This is a picture of a lot of us in some ways. People dress nice, nice clothes, dressed in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. That's living in luxury. There's a person in need right there in front of you at your gate every day, gets no food, and what do you do? You eat and you throw away the leftovers. Dress nice and have feasts every day, living in luxury and pomp. What we mean by luxury is extra, the extra, the extra clothing, the extra shoes, the extra residence, the extra transportation, the extra foods and meals, the extra hobbies. And I'm like, okay, well, we gotta, like, you know, my kids laugh at me for this and it is funny, but now it's even convicting now. Maybe you said, like, how many Bibles I own? You know, my kids laugh at like me searching for the endless final Bible, you know, the one that, that will be the one that meets all of my needs. I just own a ton of Bibles. Spend money on Bibles, just luxuriously, right? <laughs> um, uselessly, like a not a necessity, not a need. When there's people who have needs, could that money go to be used, used to help people in, in need? Luxury versus necessity. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. evil, right? So you have luxury versus necessity. Then you have in verse 5, self-indulgence versus self-sacrifice. Look at self-indulgence. You have lived luxuriously on earth, and you have indulged yourselves. Instead of sacrificing your own for the good of others, you indulge yourself. If you had more money, 
Question for you. If you had more money, what would you spend it on? If you got a 25% raise, what would you do with that money? Would it go to necessities? Would it go to luxuries? Or would it go to other people's necessities and eternal dwellings? How much more would you need to make before you get to the point of not spending it on yourself and for more, more luxuries you, you want? But intensely investing that money in eternal dwellings. How much more do you need to make before you'll stop using the extra on yourself? John Wesley, have you guys heard of John Wesley? Anyone here heard of John Wesley? Pastor in the 1700s. John Wesley founded Methodist. Have you heard of the Methodist Church? That was founded by John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. John Wesley wasn't poor. He actually, um, his dad was a pastor and he didn't want to be poor as a pastor. Sounds familiar. Uh, but he wasn't poor. He became a professor instead and he made 30 pounds a year. Now, I try to look up how much pounds would be for today. I couldn't find a calculation. So just think maybe $30,000 a year or something like that. That's not enough in Southern California. But imagine, so he makes 30 pounds a year. That's his full annual salary, 30 pounds a year, which was more than enough for him as a single man to live on. And he spent it on leisure and on hobbies. And then one day, there was a chambermaid in the place where he lived who was serving, and it was a very, very cold winter. And in the cold winter, all she had was one layer of clothing on. And she asked him for money. And he loved Jesus and he loved her as a friend and as a neighbor. So he looks in his pockets to get money and he's got nothing. And he feels so bad that she has nothing and he can't give anything because he spent it all on leisure and on extra things that he did not need. And so it says here in one story about him, immediately the thought struck him that the Lord was not pleased with the way he had spent his money. So he asked himself, will thy master say, well done, good and faithful servant or good and faithful steward? Thou hast adorned your walls. Oh, because he, he bought some decorations for his, 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 his walls. That's what he spent his money on. And then, like, he got this knock on the door for help. And he just spent his money on, like, these decorations for his house, on the, on the walls. And then he says, will the master say, well done, good and faithful steward. You have adorned your walls with the money which might have screened this poor woman from the cold. Oh, justice. Oh, mercy. Are these not are not these pictures of blood? Uh, are, are, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? So he bought pictures for his house. And John was just like, man, these are pictures of blood. So in 1731, John Wesley budgeted his money. How much do I need to live? And he needed 28 pounds. He made 30 pounds that year. You know what he did with the two pounds? He gave it away. The next year, he made 60 pounds. He needed 28 pounds to live on. You know how much he gave away? 32 pounds. Made $60,000, gave away 32,000, kept 28,000 for his needs. The next year, he made 90 pounds. You know how much he gave away? 62 pounds. And lived off of 28 pounds. John Wesley got to the point over years where one year he took in over 1,400 pounds. 1,400 pounds. He lived off of 30 pounds and he gave away all the rest of the pounds. Because he had no family to care for, he had no need for savings. He was afraid of laying up treasures on earth. So the money went out in charity as quickly as it came in. He reports that he never had 100 pounds at any one time on him. Just kept giving it away. It was written about Wesley here. It says, he believed that with increasing income, what should rise is not the Christian standard of living, but the standard of giving. Or, you read verse 5, you've lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. Reading on in the verse, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What do you do with turkeys before Thanksgiving? Or, well, well back in the day, when, before they, they killed the turkey, what would they do? If you're about to eat one of these animals, what do you do? You, you fatten them up, right? You fatten them up for the meal. That's what you do. And what James is saying is, you know what you've done? In verse 5, you know what you do with your money? You, guess who you fattened? Yourself. For your day of slaughter, because you're going, you're going to be judged for this. You're like, you're, like, you're like someone who's about to get eaten, and you fatten yourself up for those who are going to eat you. That's what you're like when you spend your money and indulge in these ways. So church family, let me give you, two, let me give you an application here before we go to our fifth point here. Application, give more generously to Christ's cause 
through the church and in other ways as the Lord leaves. You know what she promised? We promised as a church to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. That's what we promised to do. The relief of the poor, that's where our church is weak. The relief of the poor, are we, are we good at that? Do we give to the relief of the poor, among other things? Here, James is aiming directly at the relief of the poor. Do we give for that? One way to give, one, way, one, one application is to actually take your phone out and then give today. You're like, I already gave this today. Did you give, but now you've heard a message. Does that mean you wait till next week to give? No. Take out your phone, take out your church app, and give more. If that's what God's calling you to do. I think God might be calling some of you to do that, so I wanted to, to mention that briefly. But the point here, again, is to reject the world's wise ways of wealthy living. Because it promotes false security, it increases undeniable materialism, it makes God angry, it perpetuates selfishness. Number five, it sins against others. Look at verse six. It, it, it sins against others. Look at verse six. You have condemned and you have murdered the righteous. Two things there. You have condemned and you've murdered the righteous. Now, condemn means they take them to court. And remember, when you're wealthy, you have more power to sue, right? You got more resources. You got more legal resources. So you use that. They take people to court and they use their power to sue and to, to condemn others. And not only that, it says here, you have murdered the righteous. You could translate that murder the righteous one. Is that referring to Jesus? I don't think it's re directly referring to Jesus. I think it could be applied to Jesus. Certainly, they, certainly Herod and Pilate murdered Jesus for the sake of their worldly power, right? Their worldly status, not eternal, not eternal dwellings. They certainly did it for, world, for worldly status. So it certainly applies to Jesus. But the point here is that just like the rich, just like Herod and Pilate used their worldly status and treasured that over Jesus, so also the rich, even Christian rich, will prefer their worldly status to the neglect and the condemnation, the, 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 legal, the legal negligence, and even the murdering or the killing, the deaths of the poor and of the righteous. James is not saying here, brothers and sisters, that in the church there were actual murderers. That's not what he's saying. And I, I, you need to get that because if you hear it that way, you don't get the fresh conviction of this passage. In what way is it causing deaths? In what ways? Now, it might mean that he's not arguing that everyone is a mur murderer legally, like you could charge them with crimes and you could just do, do justice and then they would be found guilty of murder. Now, perhaps he's referring to the courts. Now, remember, if you withhold a day's wage, in those days, you don't have refrigerators and, and stored food. You needed food every day. You needed to, to buy your food every day. When, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we don't, feel the, the, we don't feel the dailiness of that prayer request. Because we we're probably good for the next week or two in our refrigerator, right? We got stuff. But back then, you needed daily bread. If you don't have food, you die. You need food fresh every day. So if you withhold from them, people are dying and getting unhealthy because, and, and eventually dying, not immediately dying, but eventually dying because of the negligence. Because of the negligence. He's stating the reality that the effect of their negligence and the effect of their selfish, lavish, luxurious lifestyles contributes to the death of the righteous, of the poor. Do you know that poverty is caused by at least four factors? This is from the book When Helping Hurts by Fickert and Corbett. They say that there are four causes of poverty. And when you look at any person who's poor, it's not always the same thing. And sometimes it's a mixture of the four. The four things are this. Personal choice, people make bad choices. They're irresponsible and they're, they sin, and that's why they're poor. Second reason, and they, remember, there could be a mixture here, they're all in play. Second one is there are evil people who are oppressing them and exploiting them. So you have exploiters. Third, you have systems. There are systems in this world. There's a system of how money works and how transportation works and how making money works that the system can squeeze out people and make them poor and make it harder for them to make money as opposed to other people. And the fourth one is Satan. Demons are real, you know that, right? Have you ever talked to, not everyone who has mental health issues are struggling with demonic oppression, but some of them can be. Have you ever talked to a homeless person who, who isn't all there uh, mentally? That happens. There are, there are multiple reasons for poverty. Conservatives like to emphasize personal responsibility, social conservatives. 
Social liberals like to emphasize systems of oppression. What I'm saying, in actuality, in reality, they're all true. They're all there, they're all real. And it costs people's lives, it hurts people. It hurts people. I was just thinking even like very practically, like just, just it's, it's not even intentional. So don't think intentional sin here. Just think the way, have you thought about how our cars, how our driving our cars makes it harder for us to care for the poor? Have you thought about that? Like where do you see, you know, if you're driving off the freeway, right? And you see people who need something. If you're walking or biking, you could, you, you, you could feel a little bit more of the interaction, right? But in a car, you, you could just keep your window up. You could look straight. The light can turn green. You could follow the pattern of the three cars in front of you who did not look at him or her, and so they just ignored it, so you could just follow the pattern. It's not, you, didn't, you didn't say, I'm gonna neglect the poor today, or I wanna neglect that person. You're not saying that, but there's a pattern and a system of how we live our lives. It's a, just a pattern of how we do things, habits. And habits can squeeze people out and benefit others. That's true of all kinds of cultural patterns. And if you're a Christian who cares, you have to care about the patterns. You have to take note. We, we, don't, we, don't, we cannot use our unintentional negligence as an excuse because it's unintentional, because we're ignorant. We need to pay more attention to the systems of how we live our lives. Let me make a call here that's not gonna do justice to the call, but Reggie has been praying for you in regard to this sermon. The interns will know Reggie has had a big burden for the poor and he brought it up oftentimes in his uh, internship, in his internship discussions, even his definition of the, the church. He'd include in his definition of the church that they care for the poor. He put it in the definition of, of what a local church is. And uh, I texted him last week like, brother, I'm preaching James 5, 1 through 6, I need your prayers. So he texted me this morning that he's praying for you guys, and he's praying for me. But what Reggie was gonna do before he left, he, well, he wasn't planning on leaving, he was gonna take over Children's Hunger Fund for us and become our liaison so that we can care for the poor in Bellflower. We need a member or two or three to step up and actually, well, we don't need. It would be good for us to be faithful to care for the poor, for their needs of food, and for children who are hungry, if some members would step up and do something like Children's Hunger Fund. Not all churches are approved to do Children's Hunger Fund. Our church is approved to do it. Some churches want to be part of it, they can't. We are still, we still have clearance right now, but I don't know how long our clearance is gonna last because we've neglected our account for so long. But we need, I would say, it would be really strategic for us to care for neighbors. And I know some of you are like the ones who have like five responsibilities, like I'm gonna take it up, not you. Okay, I'm not talking to you. Okay, deaconesses, deacons, I'm not talking to you. You're already doing stuff, and that, that's why you're a deacon, because you're like, ah, oh, I need to do this too. Right? That, that's exactly why you're a deacon and deaconess. But I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to everybody else, those who have more time, those who are not already preoccupied with three other ministries. You need to step up and do something. You don't have to do this, but do something. All right, last reason as we close. Reject the world's wise ways of wealthy living because, verse 6, the end of verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous. And here's the last question, and it's a question the way I translate it here. Does he not resist you? The word resist there is the same word as James 4, 6. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's another way of translating that. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So here you are, you're rich, you're wealthy, you're luxurious, you're self-indulgent, you're murdering, you're negligent, you are suing people. You're storing up treasures on earth. And James asks, he closes with the question, does God not oppose you? Is the way you live with your wealth not a form of pride that God hates and opposes? He opposes the proud. And if you live in the world's wise ways of wealthy living, then you live by definition arrogantly before God. And God opposes the proud. Let's close now by going back to the story of the rich young ruler. Turn to Luke 18. I start with Luke 18, let's go back here to the story. Remember this rich young man? It's where, where, it's where Jesus said it's easier for an, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. Luke 18. Look at this story. God opposed this rich man, right? This rich man did not wanna sell what he had and give to the poor and follow Jesus and have eternal life. He did not want that. 
He, and so he opposed the offer of Jesus, so God opposed him. It's impossible for him to enter God's kingdom. And look at verse 26. 26, Luke 18, 26. Those who heard this, if it's impossible for men. Uh, those who heard this asked, who can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So it's impossible for us to save ourselves, but is it possible for God to save rich people, yes or no? Yes, yes. God can save rich people. That's the good news. God saves wealthy people. He saves them through Jesus, and then he changes them. So read on in the, in the story. Who can be saved? Look at verse 28. Then Peter said what? Look, we have what? We left what we had and what? We left what we had. We left our riches. We left our earthly treasures. And what did we do? We followed you. And what did Jesus say back? So he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, a wife, or brothers, or sisters, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. Is it possible for people to be saved? Yes. Why? Because God changes people's hearts so that they give up everything to follow Jesus. And when they give up everything to follow Jesus, do they outgive Jesus? No. no, they do not outgive Jesus. They receive many more times in this life. And in the end, they, they receive eternal life, what this rich man wanted. These followers received. And how can they receive it? Read on to verse 31, Luke 18, 31. Then Jesus took the twelve aside and told them what? See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be what? Mocked, Mocked insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will what? Kill him. They will kill the righteous one. And he will rise on the Lord's day. I didn't say Lord's day there, but that's the Lord's day, right? He will rise on the third day. How can rich people be saved? How can Peter be saved? How can the 12 disciples be saved? How can you be saved? The Son of Man will come and die on the cross for our sins and free us from the love of stuff so that we would follow him. Or let me put it in Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty... As a man dying on a cross for our sins, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Truly rich. Not worldly rich. Truly rich. If you're not a Christian, give up everything and follow Jesus. He's worth it. Your security in this world will not secure you. Jesus is worth it. He is your wealth. He is your riches. He is your treasure and your kingdom. His kingdom is your destiny and your joy and your eternal home. Church family, live for eternal treasures by humbling yourselves with heavenly wisdom in your use of money. As one rapper has said, make the money, don't let the money make you. <laughs> or use your money for eternal treasures, don't let money use you to keep you from your eternal treasure and your eternal and infinite joy. This is divine wisdom. Money is a tool, your wealth is a tool. Don't be used by the tool. Use the tool to invest in eternity. Or lastly, I'll say it the way Martin Luther King, that's right, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther said it. We sang it in our prep singing. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Father, it's our prayer that we would let goods and kindred go. Lord, we all have the world seeping into our hearts. You know, Father, how guilty I am of self-indulgence, living luxuriously and not meeting other needs that is within my power and within my family's power to meet. God, we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want Satan to take this and cause us to accuse others and be judgmental and self-righteous. At the same time, we don't want to mute and dull what you're convicting us of. We want Jesus. We want you, Lord. We want to be free from money. 
We want to be free from the lies that we can be faithful Christians with worldly wisdom on wealth. It's just not true, Lord. Save us. Forgive us. Forgive us for perpetuating. Forgive me, Lord, for perpetuating it in this church in the ways I have. Forgive us. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's take a moment now to 